Thanks for tuning in for Axis Utah. Just a, a couple of uh, wrap-ups from yesterday's uh, program. Very heartening episode where we uh, uh, invited you to shine a spotlight on your favorite nonprofit or individual doing good in your community. We had uh, overwhelming response and uh, reminds us there are uh, many, many people out there doing a lot of good in our community. So thank you so much for the good you do, and thank you for uh, shining the, those uh, spotlights. Uh, here are a couple of... Um, uh, nonprofits that we didn't get to. Uh, we just ran out of time with the program. Good problem to have. So I wanted to make sure we got this spotlight in. This is uh, from the Logan Family Center uh, staff. Uh, let me read this email. We are a nonprofit organization dedicated to empowering and strengthening families by offering free services, resources, and programs to both children and parents alike. We offer free services and resources such as a lending library full of toys, books, and games, summer programs and activities, as well as parenting with love and logic courses, family finance workshops, etc. All are offered for absolutely free to community members. Because we are a nonprofit and offer so much to the community, we rely heavily on volunteers for general upkeep, little projects, library care, events, etc. We also rely on fundraising. We have a monthly fundraising events and stay posted for our online holiday auction in November to bid on gifts and company donations to raise money to keep our services free. Thanks so much for the opportunity to spread the word about nonprofits. You can visit our website at loganfamilycenter@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Uh, their email there, uh, loganfamilycenter at gmail.com. Um, and uh, their phone number is 435-755-5171. Again, that is the Logan Family Center. I want to uh, highlight them. And we had a uh, follow-up email. You recall the very beginning of the program, uh, Peggy, Peggy Reese called in. She's the founder of the Stool Cool After School Backpack Program, providing food uh, to, uh, to children. And you recall that uh, that program has been folded in uh, to the cash uh, food pantry, so you can go there to donate uh, to this backpack program. I uh, got an uh, email from Michelle. Michelle says that uh, Peggy, the founder of the program, is stepping away after spending years coordinating food to go home for hungry students to eat over the weekend since 2010. And they're giving her a farewell luncheon. That's on Friday, October 11th at noon, Logan Country Club. And uh, the country club serves that lunch, ranges from 9 to $15. And uh, if you know of any backpack volunteers, especially those from the beginning, please forward this email. Have them contact uh, Michelle by that deadline. Um, and uh, the, she goes on to mention that the, uh, the cash food pantry needs $12,000 in order to continue sending two days of breakfast and lunch uh, for all of these kids. So... Uh, help out if you can. You can help out the backpack program by going to a Cash Food Pantry. Uh, in any case, you can hear that episode by going to upr.org, our episode on spotlighting nonprofits. And welcome now to Access Utah. We are going to hear my conversation recorded last week with Tara McPherson. She is professor and chair in USC's School of Cinematic Arts, director of the Sidney Harmon Academy for Polymathic Studies, and faculty chair of Visions and Voices. 
and uh, she was on the OSU campus to give a, a lecture in the Tanner Talk series. The lecture was titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. The talk examined the ways in which platforms like Discord, Reddit, YouTube, and Facebook are used by various groups to spread hate and white supremacy both on and offline. Details the active recruitment of white teenage boys in online environments and considered the relationship of these more recent developments to the early digital presence of neo-Confederates on the web more than 20 years ago. In her talk, she argued that the Internet has changed in key ways to, to help support the spread of white supremacy online. Here's the first part of my conversation with Tara McPherson, recorded last week. You cover several areas in your research. Give me an overview of what you are interested in. Right. I have been teaching for quite a while, so it's given me time to, you know, hit some different topics. I began a lot of my research focused on how film and television help us understand the U.S. and what it means, and specifically the U.S. South. So I looked at the way the South has always functioned as a side of fantasy for Americans, either good or bad, from, you know, gone with the wind to deliverance, right? So my first book is called Reconstructing Dixie. But I, at the same time, have always been interested in how people use media and run a software lab that produces a platform called Scalar that lets mostly students and scholars build digital media in different kinds of ways. So I'd say broadly my research looks at the consequences of media for the public and also how the public could take up media and make new forms of argument or expression. Interesting, interesting. Uh, by the way, on, the, on, your, on your first book is the, the, the myths of the South, the popular conception of the South. That seems to be pretty enduring. Is, are, are there ways in that which that is changing? It is enduring, but it does shift. I mean, the South, I think, becomes a site to project different national fears and anxieties and fantasies onto. So the way the South was represented before the civil rights movement and after the civil rights movement are fairly different. And that's one of the things I look at in the book is how our understanding of the South's meaning shifted across time. So in the early 20th century, um, media about the South tended to hold black and white in contrast. So you would have Scarlet in Gone with the Wind and Mammy, and they defined each other um, against each other, right? By the time you get to, say, the 1980s in a television show like Designing Women, which was very popular at the time, um, the kind of tension and relationship of white to black tends to fade away, and you focus typically, in, say, on that show, on white femininity, right? Yeah, interesting, yeah. Um, and, of course, Steel Magnolias is one of the, yes, you yes. know, the, the, this idea of femininity... Southern femininity. Right. right. And that film is, is very interesting. You know, it's based on a play, but it's a play and a film set in an area which is racially fairly diverse and integrated, but you wouldn't know it from the film if you watch the film. The film is almost entirely populated by white women and a few kind of comic relief white men. So it's a way, I think, that after the um, intensity of the civil rights movement, media about the South tended to shy away from race as a category, right? So instead, you imagine the South as this white space, even though it's never been that. Mm -hmm. 
is so uh, are there ways in which the depiction of race uh, uh, is changing uh, bound up in depiction of the South. Yeah, I would say the first half of the 20th century, the racial depictions were overtly racist and they were one of the ways that um, racial control happened, right? So from Birth of a Nation to Gone with the Wind, you know, these are films about uh, a kind of certain threat of blackness and how blackness might be contained. So Birth of a Nation helped re-inaugurate the Klan as, as a formation, right? In the second half of the 20th century, after the Civil Rights Movement, that kind of overt, explicit racial um, expression was more taboo. Right. So racism tends to be more covert. Media dealt with it less explicitly. Um, And I think we're entering a whole different configuration of race in the 21st century. So many scholars agree on that kind of overt covert split across the 20th century. But I think many of us are grappling with what's happening right now and uh, a return to explicit racism that I think in the 90s we wouldn't have imagined. So this, uh, I think, can get us into the topic of your talk here yeah. at Utah State University. Um, so uh, you examine the ways in which platforms like Discord, Reddit, YouTube, and Facebook are used by various groups to spread hate and white supremacy, both on and offline. So new opportunities to be more explicit in, in about uh, about one's racism yes. on these forums? And one of the, the things that turned me to this research, or I might say returned me to it, in the first book, Reconstructing Dixie, I write about a group of neo-Confederates, um, men, white men in the, in the U.S. South who were still very fixated on the Civil War and its loss, who used the web in the 90s, just as the web and the internet was becoming popular, to kind of wage that battle all over again, right? So there were a group of sites called DixieNet, and they were neo-Confederate, kind of arguing for a Southern, white Southern identity. But they did that not by talking about race explicitly. Instead, they talked about heritage, right? And I wrote about those groups and how they used an idea of heritage in the first book. And I really thought they were a curious formation that would disappear, right? That they were very isolated on the internet. It didn't seem like they would be attracting new audiences in the way they were presenting their story. And they were interesting to look at, but not very concerning to me. And then you fast forward to um, Charlottesville and the Unite the Right rally that happened tragically in Virginia. And as I'm watching the news coverage and reading the New York Times afterward, I see a familiar figure, um, Michael Hill, who um, was a professor um, in Alabama who leads a group called League of the South, who I had written about in the first book. And he was one of the organizers of the Unite the Right rally. And he was suddenly part of a much broader movement around far-right activism and white supremacist discourse than I could possibly have imagined he would have been in 1998, right? And that led me to really try to understand what had changed with the internet from 1998 to 2018 that could have allowed what seemed like a very marginal group of white Southern men to come to that kind of national prominence in Charlottesville. 
Uh, I was just I was trying to pull this up. Oh, here it is. Um, I went to the Southern Poverty Law Center. Fifty mm-hmm. percent um, increase in total white nationalist groups in 2018. Yes. Alarming statistic. Forty uh, is the estimated number of people killed in North America with radical right uh, terrorist attacks in 2018. And uh, this one I didn't understand. Maybe you could explain this to me. Over a thousand number of hate group flyering incidents in uh, 2018. Yes, there's a very, um, one of the ways that organizing that happens online moves offline. It's not just in the rallies like we saw in Charlottesville or that we've seen in many cities since, but in leafleting campaigns that often target communities and campuses. So for instance, in Southern California, many of the public universities have had ethnic studies or women's studies departments targeted with a variety of pamphlets and flyers that have really um, um, called for organizing around white power and white identity or circulated very um, anti-Islamic or anti-Semitic or misogynist messages. So you might show up at your office as a women's studies professor and find that your office door has been covered mm. with, you know, um, propaganda. Mm. Uh, this 50% increase in uh, in white nationalist groups in 2018 is, is I guess, it fits a trend and it's uh, a troubling trend, of course. And it, it, all of this goes against. Uh, what some conceived of as the the new age, the digital age, the internet, and everything um, was going to be u- utopian. We're going to yes, leave yes. our prejudices outside that door. That certainly has not happened. No, not at all. And I, I was pretty certain that wasn't going to happen even in 1998. But um, the way in which um, the kind of worst forms of human social organization have found root and growth on the internet happened even more quickly than I think some of us imagined it would. So um, the the possibility of finding like-minded individuals and building that movement more broadly, I think platforms on the internet have really um, accelerated the process. They've made it much easier. Mm. In 1998, if you put up a website, it was pretty hard for people to find that website. You know, um, search functions worked, but there were very few ways to kind of congregate masses of people around a single idea on the internet. But as platforms like Facebook and YouTube have really come to dominate what the internet is, they also have a kind of concentrating and amplifying effect at the same time. Time, right, mm-hmm. so it makes it much easier for people to find each other through things like hashtags and search algorithms that deliver particular kinds of content. So, uh, how do you parse out would would growth have happened anyway? It's, you know, we we would have hoped that hate would recede, but yeah. it certainly has not. Um, but but I expect that the internet, digital uh, media, has accelerated. Uh, I guess in one way. Just helping people find each other. I think that's a great question. You know, unfortunately, we can't answer it in a definitive way because we live in a internet era and a platformed era. So we'll never know if it wouldn't have happened otherwise. But I think several things dovetailed across the 21st century that helped um, fuel this rise. As while the statistic you note is specific to a year, the trend is about five years old in that acceleration of, of hate groups. And 
I think Obama's election was a galvanizing factor for the far right. The fact that uh, African American became president and was visible um, helped um, give rise to an expression of discontent and racist hatred that might um, have happened without the internet. But folks who shared that opinion with platforms found it increasingly easy to find each other and to mobilize. So I think many factors came together to kind of create this new moment of race and racism in U.S. history. Um, But definitely digital platforms are part of what helped it grow. You're listening to my conversation with USC Professor Tara McPherson. She was recently on the USU campus to give a talk in the Tanner Talk series. Uh, her talk was titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about platforming hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. That's the title of a lecture in the Tanner Talk series at Utah State University given recently uh, by uh, University of Southern California professor Tara McPherson. Uh, Here's uh, part two of my conversation recorded last week. I was reading a couple of articles at the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center. Mm. Um, I've been, I I guess, blissfully unaware of some of this. Um, Just hear it in headlines and such. I haven't and and I I spent an hour and dipped a toe in right. You, I'm sure you 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 have a much more you've immersed yourself, um, but it's it's vitriolic. Yeah. So yeah. some of the some of the at least the language. Yes, a lot of it's and, very ugly. It has it takes many forms. I think several of the well organized groups that the Southern Poverty Law Center classifies as hate groups. Ha- operate on multiple levels. So one dimension of their recruitment um, soft sells the hate and, and racism and misogyny in order to recruit. And then if you follow it more into its leadership and depths, it's definitely amplified. So um, the progress I'm making on writing this book is not speedy. And a part of it's because it's very um, demoralizing work to do to kind of recognize the depth of um, hatred, of um, plans that are being made that are terrifying, that um, of the recruitment strategies that are being aimed particularly at young white men, young white boys, to see that organization is um, heartbreaking, right? And, you know, I'm not naive. I have studied racism in American history for many years, and I have never imagined we lived in a country that wasn't partially founded in racism and where racism existed. But to see it so well organized and widespread and unacknowledged is, you know, something I think we really have to take seriously right now. Um, and there is, uh, you know, violence against uh, minorities. Yes. Is talked about as a praiseworthy thing, right? Yes. Uh, this this uh, uh, phrase, day of the rope, for example. That when that comes, I think this, that's taken from Turner, Turner Diaries, is that? Yeah. And also just a sense that you can um, claim your own um, status as a hero, uh, a kind of race warrior by 
um, being brave enough to enact violence against communities of color. So in in synagogue bombing, you know, attacks in attacks at um, Islamic houses of worship, um, at schools, right? we're um, really seeing the consequence of language. I think some people cynically spin that language regardless of the consequence, and then others take up that consequence. You know, in most recently, I mean, you know, in the most recent cycle, I think people began to notice it with Dylan Roof, but it's just accelerated, right? And while we've lived in a country that spent, I think, you know, over a decade imagining Islamic terrorism as our greatest threat, certainly homegrown terrorism is our greatest threat for the stability of our democracy right now. So uh, on the internet, on social media sites, uh, there's an ongoing debate on uh, how much do you suppress this kind of speech? How much do you not? After all, free speech is a very treasured value. I just want to read this. This is from an article on the Southern Poverty Law Center talking about... um, um, you know, this, this kind of ideology on these sites. Uh, just quoting Reddit CEO Steve Huffman, known on this site, and the site they're talking about here is um, the underscore Donald. Uh, you're probably familiar with that. We'll get into talking about that as well. Uh, known on that site as Spez, defends the decision not to ban the underscore Donald, um, which is a subreddit, saying it is a small part of a large problem we face in this country that a large part of the population feels unheard, and the last thing we're going to do is take their voice away. And then the, uh, the writer goes on to say, however, Reddit must weigh its commitment to free speech absolutism against the potential for hate speech to cause real harm while confronting the uncomfortable truth that white nationalism is among those, quote-unquote, unheard perspectives, finding a voice on a forum that uh, has the ear of a sitting president. That's a supposition on the writer's part. And there, there's there's speculation about whether the president reads Reddit, you know, but uh, or someone in his administration does. But anyway, this this, this balancing act of, of uh, how much do you suppress, how much do you not? I think the far right has done a very good job of creating a imagined crisis of free speech, particularly on college campuses, right, in order to um, safeguard their ability to spew hate speech, right? And it goes against really the actual language of the Constitution, which is quite precise. It doesn't grant free speech to everybody in every context, right? So they're many, many ways historically in communications that we limit and regulate speech, right? So um, you're not allowed to libel people. You're not allowed to yell fire in a movie theater. You're not allowed to show porn on broadcast television at particular times of the day. You're not allowed to do certain things in movies marketed to children. I think if we stop thinking about free speech as a binary, we have it or we don't, and we instead think about reasonable regulation that has has the best chance to reduce the greatest harm, it becomes nonsensical to say we can't limit speech in any way, right? We already do. There, you know, great legal precedent. And, um, you know, we, the FCC has always been about thinking about what speech we can and cannot allow. We could also turn to the example of many other countries, which have very, um, um, 
staunchly and without any um, um, worry set up policies to try to understand how speech can be harmful, that it actually has consequences. It leads to things like Dylan Roof shooting up a black church, right? We know that he was on far-right websites that stoked that real-world violence. So when I go to talk about this work in Canada or Germany or Stockholm, many of the videos I would show in the U.S. to illustrate some of the groups that I'm studying won't play on YouTube in those other countries because the countries already have thought through ways to think about speech and its consequences. Um, they're democracies. They're vibrant democracies. They're democracies with often higher standards of living and happiness um, registers than the U.S. has, and yet they found ways to say this is not speech that promotes democracy in a civic realm, right? Mm. Um, it was so interesting to me the first time I went to play a video in Canada, you know, just over the border from California. And, you know, the, what came up on YouTube, the same company, was, you know, a banner that said this content is not appropriate. It has been removed. But YouTube, the same company, YouTube, in Los Angeles allowed that video to play. So the companies have the mechanisms they need to limit speech, even though they often claim otherwise. But their bottom line benefits from having controversial and dark content. So they're not inclined in their business model to limit dark speech. Mm. Right? Uh, now, some companies have gone further than others. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, Twitter has banned some. And they Users, they, they come and go, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, the founder of the Southern League who I mentioned, League of the South, who I mentioned earlier, was removed from Twitter after Charlottesville. But, um, you know, people recreate accounts, um, alternate platforms like Gab develop, which was created after a bunch of people were booted off of Twitter to give them their own platform, right? So, um, you know, videos might play one year in the U.S. and then they'll temporarily go down, but other videos created by the same person with a different account will persist, right? So it's a very uneven application. I think when negative attention is focused on a company, when something horrific like a church shooting happens and it's clear that um, the perpetrator was connected to a particular website or followed a far-right speaker, that person might temporarily be banned. But more effective would be larger policies and broader public conversations about um, the kind of speech that's actually happening and what we might do about it. Mm -hmm. I think most people who hypothetically think free speech is a great idea, might not feel so comfortable knowing that actual plans to bomb cities are happening, you know, in Discord chats or in, you know, private communications on Facebook. And if the people perpetrating that speech were Islamic men, most Americans would probably say, shut them down, mm -hmm. right? But... Um, the, the way that free speech floats as a very abstract concept in America, I think, makes it hard to connect the dots between a cherished idea 
and the consequences for some of the very dark, violent speech that's happening mm-hmm. online. So your suggestion is um, maybe, you know, sh- obviously uh, there's a room for shutting uh, some of these down, but it's sort of like whack-a-mole, isn't it? You know? It is so, a will. So, uh, so making it, making uh, the speech broad, more broadly known uh, to people. And, and then, uh, so that gets me into talking about the marketplace of ideas. The ideal is, okay, even if it's totally repugnant, you know, let that person shout that out. And, and then the, the, the cooler-headed majority will, will regulate that, in quotes, um, or sort of, I guess, shunning them or shaming them or uh, expelling them in that way from, from the marketplace of ideas. Uh, but if you have these dark corners... And we don't have a single marketplace. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of platforms operating together, sometimes intersecting at a scale that's very hard to monitor, right? When we had, you know, um, broadcast airwaves that in most cities produce three or four channels of TV, it was fairly easy to kind of, you know, think through what was acceptable, um, you know, what violated community standards, what didn't, right? And we had guidelines and ways to enforce. That's harder now. Um, What Sweden has done has been to criminalize hate speech. And it's not perfect in the Swedish system, but there are consequences to that speech. And um, they, you know, work with researchers to help identify speech in hidden places on the web. And if it's um, emerging in Swedish context, there could be legal and criminal consequences to that speech. And, you know, that's an option that I think um, is viable. You know, in um, Germany, which lives much more um, honestly, I think, with the legacy of the Holocaust and, you know, the in fairly recent history, you're not allowed to have swastikas as part of, you know, kind of public display. And, you know, you're not, um, you couldn't, um, you know, circulate them in media there. And I think in Germany, people are astounded that that symbol has become so broadly taken up in the United States. You're listening to Access Utah, and you're listening to my conversation recorded last week with a uh, professor at U, uh, University of Southern California, Tara McPherson. She was on the USU campus recently to give a lecture in the Tanner Talk series. Well, the final uh, segment from that conversation following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment of my conversation recorded uh, last week with USC professor Tara McPherson. She recently gave a lecture in the Tanner Talks series at USU titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. I was reading about Reddit, um, and, and it, you know, we established that Reddit is a, like a little more permissive than some of the, some of the sites, right? But even on Reddit, uh, some subreddits have been shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I was reading about this, this subreddit uh, called The Donald, um, where the, the, the moderators there, and I don't understand how Reddit works, but you can, you can inform me. Uh, the moderators there uh, apparently, or, or, and the participants, uh, are, got a little subtler, right, to, to make sure they weren't shut down, I suppose. 
Um, and, and so they're not uh, being as explicit as some of those other subreddits, uh, but the, the gist is pretty clear. Yeah, I mean, I think they're, um, I'm not, I don't feel like we should ban all mildly controversial speech, right? I think that's likely to have consequences that are unforeseen for many communities. But I think reasonable people could decide if something is meant to incite hate and that that is a responsibility of a government to protect its citizens by um, finding ways to curtail speech and planning that aims toward public harm. Yeah. There are no easy solutions, right? I think education has also not performed the job it should to make young men maybe less susceptible to being recruited to these groups. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, responsibility is – Um, on parents, it's on school systems, to better teach American history in ways that um, help us understand how integral race and racism have been to America's constitution and um, maybe be a little less susceptible to some of the ideas that are used as kind of entry-level recruitment tactics to bringing people into the far-right fold. So um, yeah, let's, let's get into that. Uh, so it's, I guess it's white young men, this word. Primarily, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. I, um, I'll tell you a, a kind of more personal story. I have a 17-year-old son. He's a very avid video gamer. And um, he, his best friend for many years was a young man in our neighborhood, probably one of the leftiest neighborhoods in America, in Los Angeles, right? And they lost touch a bit after high school, reconnected, playing games. So they were, you know, in a game together, recognized each other, were chatting, started to chat more, and um, were planning to connect and get together. And the young man said to my son, you know, but I should warn you, my friends and I, we're a little bit racist now, right? And, um, Sadly, I was not surprised given the research that I've been doing, right? But it's it's a problem that's pervasive. It's not only in Alabama. It's not only in Idaho. It's um, across the places the internet can reach, which are pretty much everywhere now. And it's a fairly articulated and planned campaign to use humor and memes and teen boy cynicism to kind of pull more young men into networks by making them feel they're under attack. Hmm. Uh, so what's the vulnerability? Where, where do these recruiters, um, you know, the, to be successful, there's, there's got to be something in these boys, the, 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 a need that's, that's being met? I think that um, in many school systems, Young women are performing very well. Like we know in college admissions now, um, you could pretty much fill a class with women as freshman classes because 
for whatever reason, partially probably socialization, girls are performing as better students typically in high school now than young men, right? And for many years, men were protected against that consequence and maybe less so now. So I, it's not unrealistic maybe for a young boy to feel like um, he doesn't have access to everything he might have imagined he would have had access to, you know, and that creates a vulnerability. Um, young women are less likely, I think, to tolerate humor that's sexist or racist now than they might have been in the past and may call a young man out for something that he says. And then in that kind of shamed or, or hurt state, um, a young man becomes, I think, much more susceptible to be recruited into these networks. Yeah. So um, I've seen material produced that's almost like a recruitment manual that gives you sort of entry-level jokes and memes to share. And then if you find uh, interested audience, ways to escalate the conversation to bring, um, uh, you know, kind of recruit further into an organization's network. Um, organizations that require its members to bring in new members in order to move higher into the network themselves, right? So it's um, – there are many different groups operating, but many of them understand in, you know, the words of, you know, a tweet that was just publicly available, um, we're fighting an infotainment war. We need to, you know, have the best humor. We need to – you know, have the best jokes, and we could use those to to win people to our side. Mm -hmm. right? Apparently, recruitment is going fairly well. The, the, the numbers of hate groups are increasing. Yes, I think, yeah. and and you know, there's a very polarizing language coming from the White House, and you know, many people understand um, Trump's unwillingness to say after Charlottesville call out, you know, um, the far right for what happened and to say they're fine people on both sides, right? People understand that that is a um, implicit consent to what's happening, right? And uh, a series of, you know, what we might say are dog whistles to the far right. Certainly, if you follow many of the Reddit and Twitter streams for far right figureheads, they understand Trump's language that way, even if Trump denies that his language has that effect. Mm. What, are the, uh, what are the concerns of these white supremacists? Groups. Um, what, for example, one phrase that I, I was seeing is um, white genocide. Yes, there's definitely a perception that whiteness is under threat, that um, uh, attention to historically marginalized peoples then necessarily diminishes or threatens whiteness. So it's a, a view of sort of life as a pie. And if, you know, um, African-Americans and Latinx folks are getting more, whites must be getting less. I mean, I think that's a um, naive way to view the world. It's not necessarily a zero-sum game. But the fear of that in times when we see you know, real economic inequality that affects whites as well as everybody else, right? People um, are susceptible to that argument, like the, the idea that somehow immigrants have taken jobs or that um, 
your child is not getting into, you know, um, Georgetown because African-American students are getting in unfairly, even though we know statistically that being white is your best bet for getting into any of those college, you know, top 50 colleges, even um, with everything else being equal, right? So the, the perception that whiteness is somehow under attack is real, you know, um, even if it's inaccurate, right? So I, the Confederate monuments were a good example of that. The perception that um, bringing down a statue of Robert E. Lee in New Orleans would um, diminish white history, right, rather than uh, awareness that that statue was put up to curtail the movements and freedom of African Americans, right? It, it was not really put up as a statue to white heritage. It was erected, um, you know, almost all the Confederate monuments went up during the rise of the Klan after Reconstruction and during the Civil Rights Movement. They were messages, right? And um, they weren't put up you know, there's no place, you know, like you don't go to Germany and see monuments to Hitler, right? You know, those came down after he lost a war, right? And um, the notion that to honor whites in the South, you must honor a failed confederacy, you know, which destabilized the nation and lost a war is an odd idea, right? But it gets mobilized very well by the far right to um, accelerate white anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I expect there's a there's a uh, a spectrum, mm-hmm. uh, right? Uh, some people just concerned about you know Confederate heritage or or whatever, um, and you know maybe not out and out totally racist, but to maybe having some tendencies um, all the way up to you know um, white nationalist terrorist right. And the, what was you know different about these groups, when I looked at them in the 19, late 1990s and now, um, 20 years later, is really um, a movement from wanting, from defending those ideas as just a kind of Southern heritage to connecting those ideas to groups like the Nationalist Front, so which is a very far right, you know, hate group. So in 1998, the League of the South would not have publicly or overtly had anything to do with a neo-Nazi group. But now um, that alliance has been much more easily made. And I think that's partially because the internet has helped those groups find common ground. Mm -hmm. And the very call to unite the right that was the name of the rally in Charlottesville is recognition of that, Mm -hmm. that that we have common ground, you know, our common ground is to protect whiteness. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the Reddit groups I've studied and um, some of the um, released chats that happened on Discord that have been, you know, um, that happened in private but were hacked and released after Charlottesville, those materials show a very conscious effort to try to move folks who were just concerned about the statues into more radical ideas around white supremacy. Mm-hmm. So, the, in at least some of these groups, is a very purposeful yeah. Um, yeah. effort. Yeah. Uh, by the way, on, on some of these, uh, you know, call them back channels or whatever, you know, the, the dark recesses of the, the Internet, what was the reaction to Charlottesville? And, and and the and the media coverage and the public. Um, it was mixed. There were folks who felt um, who 
perceived the event to have been planned very in a kind of amateur way that didn't sufficiently control the message, right? Others felt like um, it could be used as an opportunity to extend the reach and recruit new members, right? So the um, there was a lot of infighting amongst the groups that were trying to unite about whether or not Charlottesville was executed well and, you know, um, a lot of um, worry about what the optics of the event were. Did it, you know, create a bad image and um, what would be the ways to recover from that image? So some of the groups are much more interested in a mainstream rhetoric, which sort of gently masks intent and, you know, will claim to not be racist. And then other groups are much more overtly, um, not a, not ashamed to say we're racist mm-hmm. and be proud of that. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I expect our audience has, has heard of uh, the Proud Boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, I noticed uh, on uh, the Sun Poverty Law Center, the, the hate map, uh, they classify, how I guess, you know, Proud Boys as a, as a hate group. There's a chapter in Utah uh, mm. of, of Proud Boys. Um, and the founder of Proud Boys, he, he, he calls it a pro-Western fraternal organization, right? He says, we're not Nazis. Um, Southern Poverty Law Center, I guess, classifies them as a hate group. Uh, so, so it illustrates, again, there's, there's a broad range of... Yes, uh, and at least I think, the, the, way the way these people are, are facing, outward. and they're definitely one of the groups that want to have like a a cleaner image, right? So they they pay attention to how they dress and what they wear, and um, not showing up in Nazi insignia and combat boots, right? Um, you know, they have clearly incited violence at a variety of events, and um, it, it's. You you know that's documented in video, right? It's it's not a speculation, but they do present a, a kind of strive for a more mainstream image in, in how they um, are recruiting and organizing. And they're not even though you know they um, ha- they support you know kind of white ethno states. They're not an exclusively white organization, which is interesting. Mm. That is interesting. There are, there are groups. They're, they're members of the Proud Boys who are not um, white men, right? Mm-hmm. And which is interesting. So. Yeah. I, 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 guess, I guess you'd have to talk to a minority member of the Proud Boys to, what's, to see what the thinking is there. Mm. Uh, I, I guess because I, guess, <laughs> um, I can't see a, you know, a black member of the KKK, for example. And historically, there were some, right? You know, mm-hmm. so... Um, you know, it's it's not impossible. They're not, you know, a large number of the membership of the Proud Boys, but they're um, certain messages they have about freedom of speech, about a kind of libertarian mindset that I think appeal to, you know, young men in general, um, and that those ideas are not always coupled to you know, wanting to have a white enclave, right? Um, so aspects of what they're promoting might seem appealing while, you know, other aspects are um, disregarded, mm-hmm. right? We just have about a, a couple of minutes left. I, I want to go back to, um, you know, your research for the book, and it proceeds slowly in part because it's it's pretty hard sledding, yeah. reading through some of this stuff. Um, 
and this anecdote about your your son and his friends, uh, how do we counteract this? I think the, the vast majority of people listening would say that these ideas need to be counteracted. They're they're harmful. How how do we go about that? Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I think is the most pressing issue for, you know, scholars to grapple with because, you know, typically part of the function of scholarship is to explain and give a context and history to ideas and not so much to intervene in that, you know, space. But I feel like we're at a really critical inflection point where ethically we're obligated to intervene. So I think there are a number of different possibilities we might think about right now. I've been looking at a number of YouTube producers who are consciously countering the ideas of um, uh, the far right. One is a performer um, whose channel is called channel is called Contrapoint, and they're very humorous. Um, deconstructions of the ideas of the far right. And they garner a wide viewership and they circulate in the same ecosystem as a lot of the very kind of hate-filled far right videos. So I'm, you know, interested in how we might produce counter media that offers up different ideas, but offers it up not like a scoldy professor um, or in a very didactic way, but in the register of YouTube's modes of expression. So, you know, kind of funny, um, viral video that could intervene in that kind of ecosystem. I also think it's important that parents who imagine their child would never be um, pulled into these networks of racism um, recognize that there actually is a very real threat and have very direct and honest conversations with their children about that possibility from a young age because it's much harder to you know, kind of have that conversation with a 15-year-old than it is, I think, with an 8-year-old, right? And um you know, I always grew up hearing, um, you know, well, you learn racism at home, right? And I think um, you do. But now a whole generation of young men are learning it through their headsets um, with parents who may be oblivious that it's even happening. And parents need to be aware. I'm not saying you should ban your kids from video games or, you know, that they shouldn't have access to media. But you should be having conversations with them about what they're hearing. You um, should provide, if it's not in their school curriculum, um, material that helps them understand points of view that um, exceed a wide world, right? And give them the grounds to have a knowledge base and to have heard other voices that could help them resist the whispering voices in their ear, in their headsets. Well, we'll uh, we're out of time. We'll, we'll leave it there on that, on that hopeful note. Um, uh, so uh, thank you very much. Thank you. That's my conversation recorded last week with USC professor Tara McPherson. Uh, She recently gave a lecture in the Tanner Talk series at USU titled Platforming Hate, the Internet and the Rise of Hate Online. My thanks to Professor McPherson. My thanks to you for listening. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah.